Hello and welcome to another VW Podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And today we are covering Chapter 7 of Venture Deals. If you've been listening, you know we're six chapters in. I think that covers eight podcasts as we split up a couple of them into two podcasts. So the last one was the second part of Chapter 6. Chapter 6 was dealing with other terms of the term sheet. Chapter 7 is a good length if you don't like reading. It's three pages long. And there's some charts. And there's charts. There's math in it, which I enjoyed. But chapter seven is the capitalization table. And I really, really want to dig into this chapter. I got a lot more to discuss than what they just went in here because people might be surprised to learn, Aaron, how much time we actually spend in capitalization tables. So much time. Honestly, on a day-to-day basis, what in this is in your entire practice of law, what percentage of your time are you in a cap table? On average, probably... 15% of my time. I'm probably in one ten. Yeah. And we're only working on venture deals for you're doing venture deals every day, but I'm doing them maybe half the days that I'm here. Right. But I'm still on the cap table that much. I was in one just 10 minutes ago with yeah. a client. We are in these things all the time. You see, the capitalization table is not only a record of your shareholders who owns what, but you can also use it as basic repository for a lot, if not all, of your corporate governance history. We try to do this. We try and cl- encourage our clients to do this. You know, use the cap table to record the fundamental things that need to go in a cap table, which is a list of your shareholders, the type of security that they own, the investment dates, how much they paid for those securities, and what percentage of the company they now own. But you can also use a cap table or a spreadsheet, which is almost always where a cap table is housed. Use a spreadsheet to keep track of addresses, names and addresses of all your shareholders. You know, A lot of your shareholders are entities. Right, So let's know who the principals are and how to contact them. A record of transactions. When did you take those docs in? Sometimes it's helpful to know what day the docs were signed and what day they were funded. Keep a history of your convertible notes in there. That's usually a separate tab in the cap tables we build out. Option plans. Keep a history of your option plans. And all of these things can sum into your master detail cap table. I feel like I'm hogging this, Aaron, because I'm so excited about it. You want to jump well, in here? I'm, I'm over here nodding. So right. what, what our listeners can't see is that I'm nodding in agreement. The cap table can include, uh, let's see, maybe legends that are going to go on your share certificates to the extent you ever actually issue certificates. I mean, also it should include, you know, if you're taking, if you're keeping very good records, you know, when certain actions of the company were approved and, you know, who approved them, what percentage approved them. We like doing that, keeping a, a corporate transaction history. Hey, we uh, we approved this financing round on this date through this resolution and this many people sign or this percentage of people sign. It seems like a lot to do, but man, we were going through a later financing round and you have all this information internally, or if you're the company counsel and you have all this information in one place, it makes the deal a lot easier. And then the best part is when you turn this information over to the investor or to the acquirer, you say, hey, here's our corporate history in a snapshot. And you can reference all the different resolutions or executed documents. It looks really, really sharp. So a good, clean cap table is really paramount for any startup. Now, the cap tables that they have online, because for a long time, a lot of people were using the Y Combinator cap table uh, or the AngelList, the AngelList guys. I think the Y Combinator guys, right? They had their cap table up there. That was just really focused on how many shares do the founders own, how many shares the investors own, and what happens at exit. It was way too focused on that to be a really usable cap table from a corporate governance perspective. You should work with your attorney on this, on getting a good cap table model. Uh, If you're a later stage startup, we really encourage you to consider moving your cap table online. We've been real impressed. We really like eShares. 
I know there's another one called CapShares, which I've seen a few of our clients use, and I think that one works pretty well. CapTable.io works well as well. CapTable.io is super, super user-friendly. In our experience, it's not as robust as eShares is because it doesn't cover all the corporate governance. doesn't cover all the executed resolutions and whatnot. But we encourage you to look onto, look into uh, online cap table management platforms. But you got to have a really good cap table, which is, again, a history or a record of your shareholders, of your different classes of shareholders, the different securities that you've issued, your option holders, uh, your corporate transactions, convertible notes. The, the cap tables that we're in frequently are seven, eight pages long. Uh, they're constantly being updated. A model, you know, there's usually some sort of a exit model. The ones we do, not so much an exit model, but we do a lot of next round hypotheticals. Uh, we build in, okay, if we've got this cap table structure right now, and then we do another round, you know, we raise a couple million bucks at this valuation, here's what happens to everyone. Also, the note conversions, which I know, Aaron, you love doing, building that model out. Yeah. Uh, you know, you a lot of times you might have 10, 15, 20 note holders. And even though they're part of the same round, they probably have slightly different investment dates, right? Because they funded mm-hmm. and those note those uh note periods, or excuse me, note offerings can sometimes last three, six months. Well, and you might have multiple note offerings. You might have one with a two and a half million dollar cap, and then you do well and you have a five million dollar cap, and then you have an eight million dollar cap. We do think it's pretty common these days to see multiple note rounds before you get to an equity round. So you're gonna have 10, 15 note holders, as Aaron mentioned, maybe they're in different offerings, so they have different terms. Just a quick reminder, you do not want people in the same offering to have different terms. There's really no reason why you would ever do that. But anyway, so you have different note offerings and then that that those conversions get tricky and building that into the model can be complicated. But a good cap table will do all this and your attorneys can probably help you build a model so that you can play around with these things and not have to go to your attorneys every time. Uh, I also know for certain that eShares does this well. I will uh, clarify and say, if your attorney is a venture attorney, that's correct. They can help you. That's correct. If you're just talking to, you know, your cousin Jim, who's a family law attorney, he might not be able to help you. He's gonna be more lost than you are. All right. So let's talk about let's take a step back, Aaron, and just kind of build out the example that they discuss here in the book to make sure everyone understands. And then I get real nuanced in how, how cap tables work. So in this situation, they gave the scenario where you have a company with a $10 million pre-money valuation and 2 million shares held by the founders and then a $5 million investment coming in from the VC. It's a big investment round. That is a big <laughs> investment round. That's a nice round for a for a pre... You really aren't giving up 33% all that often, right. but let, let's stick with their example. Yeah. So Aaron, let's just walk through some of the basics here. $10 million pre-money valuation. They're raising $5 million. What's their post-money valuation? 15 10 plus 5 is 15. And a lot of people confuse this. But when you go to market with your valuation, you're going to market with your pre-money valuation. You wouldn't go to market and say that my valuation is $15 million. Although earlier in this book, they talked about how usually the VCs will go to the companies with the valuation as the post-money valuation. And here's why this works from a VC perspective. Because if a VC is making the offering, the VC knows how much they're going to invest. But a lot of times when you don't have a single investor or you're doing an earlier stage round, you got multiple investors, why don't you, I'll ask this to you, Aaron, why don't you want to go out and say, hey, I'm going to raise $3 million, so I'm at a $15 million post-money valuation? Because what if you don't raise that full $3 million? Then you know, you're know you not at $15 million. And if you've based everything there and not used your pre-money valuation, you know, if you only have raising one and a half, then you really should have been at 13 and a half. 
So really, or, or you know, 12 pre-money. So what you want to do is you want to focus on your pre-money. So Aaron, in their example, they have a $10 million pre-money valuation and 2 million shares outstanding. What's the price per share there? $5 per share. Okay, so it's $5 per share. 10 million divided by two. Note, we're going to stick with this example because it's in the book, but typically at an earlier stage, you usually have 10 million shares outstanding and then you have $2 million valuation. So in that instance, your price per share would be 20 cents per share. Let's stick with this example and then we'll give one more example just to make it clear for everyone. So at $5 per share, you go to the VC, say, VC, please invest at $5 per share. The VC comes back and says, well, we really wanted an employee option pool in place and that needs to be at 20%, which is what they have in the book. That's a very high number. Yes. All right. We would typically see 10, maybe 15, but let's stick with the example in the book. So we want that to be at 20%. So how does that affect our price per share calculation here? It's going to drop the price per share because they want the 20% option pool to be a post-investment 20%, which means pre-investment is going to be a little bit bigger because it's going to be diluted by the investment dollars. Basically, they don't want that option pool to affect them in any way. So you have to have 20% option pool carved out post-transaction, as Aaron mentioned, but the common shareholders, the founders, and the option pool are being diluted by the investors. And we want the option pool to be 20% after dilution by the investors. So the option pool needs to be, in this scenario, you know, 40% more, I believe it is, because then it's going to get diluted by 33%. I need to double check my math there. But it's going to get diluted by 30, the 33% investment from the VC, because they're investing five on 10, to get down to 20%. So they go through the math here, and you can check the math that they go through on page 104. I wish we they did. We, we did. checked yeah. the math. I wish we had put it, they had put the math actually into a chart. They didn't. But if you look at the last three paragraphs on page 104, then this should all reconcile. And I would encourage everyone to do this because this is really, really critical. But what they do is they say, we're at $15 million post-money valuation. And we know that the employees are going to own 20%. The investor is going to own 33.33%. So that's 53.33%. That leaves 46.67% for the founders. So if we know that 2 million shares is equal to 46.67% of the company, then you can do algebra. 2 million equals 0.4667 of X, where X is your total number of shares. And then X will now get you to 4.285 million shares. Then you can back out using percentages, the number of shares that are there for founders, employee pool, and investors. Now, you're going to have some rounding errors, some rounding issues here, which is why we would prefer to do this in Excel right. and round to four digits. Round to as many digits as you need to get it to match up. We've done eight before, done eight. right? I wouldn't, I don't know if I go past eight. You know, you can round, you can have the investor invest in cents if that, if they need to, to make the, uh, to make the actual numbers work. But yeah, you're absolutely going to usually use four going to eight. We've done that quite frequently when we haven't been able to control the whole process to make the numbers come out to be what they want to be. So in their situation here, they get to, I think it was 1.4 million shares for the 1.48, excuse me, 1.428 million shares for the investors at 350 a share. And if you go back and you multiply the total number of shares now, which was 4.285 million times $3.50, that's going to equal very close to $15 million. There'll be some rounding there because that was your post money valuation. Let's walk through this exact same thing, Aaron. Let me give you a different example, numbers that we would typically see. Are you going to make me do math yes, in my I head? Am. Pull out 
pull out pen and paper. I'm going to use numbers that we would typically see. And I'm going to do the exact same thing, but I'm going to go, I feel like they went from VC side, right? They figured out the numbers based on the VC, the post-money valuation first. Usually we do this based on pre-money valuation. All right, Aaron, so let's assume that there's, I'm going to make the numbers work here. Let's assume there's 8.5 million shares outstanding and we're at a $1 million pre-money valuation. All right. And we are going to, we need a post pool transaction excuse me, post-transaction employee pool of 10%. And we are going to take on another 33% investment like the previous example. Now I'm going to walk you through the numbers here. So 8.5 million shares outstanding. There's no employee pool currently. And we're at a million dollar pre-money valuation. What is my price per share at that point in time? Uh, well, it would be 1 million divided by 8.5 million, which would mm-hmm. give you roughly 11.7 cents. Okay. 11, 11 cents and change. That's your price per share. Now, we want this VC is asking us to be a 10% post transaction pool. Pretty typical. If we're at 8.5 million right now, and we were to add a 15% employee pool, makes the numbers very easy, that gets us to 10 million shares outstanding with 1.5 million shares being in the employee pool or 1.5 million over 10 million is 15%. 15%. Okay, so we're at a 15% employee pool pre-transaction. And I pick 15% because I want to get to 10% post-transaction. And I say, we're going to get diluted by 33%. 33%. So if we get diluted by 33... So now what's our pre-transaction price per share? 10 cents. 10 cents. So I want everyone to understand that. The value per share just went down from 11.7 cents to 10 cents, of course, because the founders were diluted by the option holders. Yeah, it's the same valuation, but you have now 1.5 million shares. shares. So please understand that if you do not have an option pool, at whatever point in time that you issue an option pool, everyone is is suffering dilution. That's okay. That's just the way it works. It's pretty typical. You're not going to grow the company without an option pool. Okay, so now in our example, we're at 10 million shares pre-transaction. Our pre-money valuation is a million dollars, and now we're going to take on 30, we're going to take on five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so it gets to thirty-three percent. So our post-money valuation is now what, Aaron? One point five. One point five million dollars. If we had ten million shares outstanding previously, and we're giving away thirty-three percent, how many shares are we going to issue in this round, Aaron? Five million. Five million gets us to fifteen million post-money, and then we had how many option shares? 1.5 million. 1.5 million over 15 million is 10%. of the business. And now the value, the price per share is going to be the exact same because you had 15 million shares. Our new post money valuation is 1.5 million. 1.5 million. So 1.5 million divided by 15 million shares again is 10 cents a share. Here's why that happens. The value of the business increased through the issuance of additional shares. The value of the shares did not increase. The investors bought the shares at 10 cents a share. So the minute after they buy the shares, the shares are still worth 10 cents per share. If anything, in this really cruel game called reality, the common shares are now worth less, most likely, because those investor shares are most likely preferred and they're going to have special rights and a liquidation preference, which is going to make the common worth less from an IRS book value perspective, but that's actually generally a good thing when you're dealing with your option plans and your exercise prices. So I know that was a lot. Let me just make this last point again. The investors came in with 10, there was 10 million shares outstanding prior to the investment. They invested $500,000 in a company worth a million dollars. 
The post money valuation of the business is $1.5 million. The number of shares post transaction is $15 million. The price per share is 10 cents post transaction, which is the purchase price for these shares. So that makes sense. That's still the price per share. Everyone good with that? Hey, what was your major in college? <laughs> it was finance. Oh, so. cool. I was political science. Yeah. <laughs> so, Look, this is what Aaron and I spend a lot of time. As Aaron mentioned, he spends one-tenth of every day with a cap table open on his desk. And I think that's probably, probably more than that. I think you said 10 to 15%. And that's right. So we're in this stuff all the time. Now, you have Excel to help you with this. But it is really, really critical that you understand this. Most likely, you're not going to get screwed on this on a term sheet because you're going to have time to review the term sheet. You're going to have time to talk about it with counsel, with your advisors. So you'll have time to work it out. Why it's so important to understand this is as you're making decisions from hiring decisions, creating option pools, what an exit might look like, it's important that you understand the repercussions of issuing new shares, what the price per share looks like. When you get into the weeds in your option plan and you're trying to figure out how you're pricing your options or what the exercise price is or what a 409A valuation looks like, which is a, a formal report done to help you value your your shares. It's very important you understand the effects of these numbers or how your cap table works so you can understand the much larger world or the, you know, the much more important scenarios of how to run your business or how the capitalization affects your business. Because it's called a capitalization table and it's got the word capital in there, which is money. And obviously everyone needs capital for their business. You need capital to, uh, to grow. So this is really a reflection of the money that's come into your business or the value, not necessarily the dollars, but the value that's come into your business and how we're recording it. Let's see. Let's skim through the notes here, Aaron. Make sure we didn't miss anything. Page 105 kind of dismisses the role of the lawyer in this thing. You know, and it says don't rely solely on your lawyer for this stuff. Great. Great advice. You shouldn't be solely relying on anyone for these things. But as Aaron mentioned earlier, if you have a good venture attorney, he or she should be really comfortable with these things and should be able to explain these things backwards and forwards and you know, give you all sorts of uh, scenarios and hypotheticals to really help you understand the impact of different events on your capitalization table. You know, I'm not surprised to see that Brad and Jason wrote that. They said at the outset of this book that they were going to pick on lawyers. So it's only fair. That's true. That's true. And But if you've got questions about your cap table, ask your lawyer. You know, for those of you who are clients out there are listening, this is something that we take great pride in. It can help you with and help you build a good model. All right. So that's capitalization tables. Uh, one more point. If you go out and you review these things online, if you do searches for it, you're going to find all kinds of cap tables. In my experience, the ones that are most often put out there by accelerators, venture funds, and you know just news-ish type sources are more focused on exits, and they're not as focused on information. Ours are really focused on information. I want to encourage you to do that. Keep a record. Even if you just need a place to jog internal notes regarding your corporate governance or your capitalization structure, put them in the cap table. It'll make your, uh, your attorney's life a lot easier whenever they need to get in there and do things for a transaction. So that wraps up chapter seven. Next week is chapter eight, which is convertible debt. It's be really interesting. We talk a lot about convertible notes and convertible debt here around the office. We've done that a lot so far. So that should be a good chapter. In close, remember our show notes can be found now in a link in the iTunes episode description. Follow us on Twitter at Velawood Law and on Instagram at Velawood. Questions or comments, podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. And remember, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Office Hours Podcast.
Aaron, anything else that I'm missing? Is that free shirt still available? I didn't want to admit it, but yeah. Either our emails are getting lost, the emails to us. We have a really good spam filter, so it's probably what it is. Free t-shirt sitting out there. Or we're just doing such a good job of explaining things that people have no questions. They have no questions or comments. Look, all you have to do is email us and say, I want a t-shirt, and you're going to get one. I'm a little sad about it. I don't know if anyone's still listening because we're a little bit past the end of the show. If anyone is, email podcasts at VelaWoodLaw.com just to make sure it's working. Right? Maybe that email address is busted. Maybe yeah. I haven't, we haven't disqualified any of us in here from emailing. I thought you said I couldn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, I asked specifically. Okay, I take that back. We have disqualified. Okay. I'll get my mom to Get email. your mom to do it. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you soon. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at